today. Um, we're in Exodus 13 this week, and we are, the title this week is The God Who Makes a Way. The God Who Makes a Way. As you're turning there, let me go ahead and pray for us. God, we come before you uh, this morning, and uh, there's so many things about you that cause us to want to worship you and, and praise you and to follow you. Um, but God, this morning, this, this facet, this attribute of your character and, and your activity in the world and in the lives of your people is truly astounding to us that, God, you make a way when seemingly to us there is absolutely no way at all. And so, God, I pray that you would remind us of that fact today that you would encourage us by that, that you would help us to apply that to our daily lives uh, today and even this week. Um, but God, we look to you and we look to you expectantly. We pray your spirit would move among your people and lead us into your truth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the God who makes a way, throughout our series, we've been looking at uh, this theme, the God who is, and we've learned a lot about the people of Israel and their journey or their time in Egypt and their journey out of Egypt, but I think it's important for us to remember that the primary character of this book is not Moses or even the Israelites in general. It is a book about God, and it is a theology book that is told in story form, and this theology book reveals to us the attributes and actions of God in the world and in real history in the redemption of His people. And in each section of the story, we learn more and more about those attributes and activities. Early on, if you remember, we learned that God hears and He sees the struggles of His people. He is not unaware. He is not aloof or distant. He is near. He remembers His covenant that He made with His people. We learned His covenant name, Yahweh, as we pronounce it, the great I Am. We learned through the plagues that He is supreme over all the other gods in this world, particularly the gods of Egypt, and I'll say gods of this world, and that He controls all of creation that He made, including life itself. And we have learned that God will bring justice on evil and show grace to His chosen people. This week, though, we are going to discover more about Him and we're going to discover that God always makes a way, even when there seems to be no way at all. One of the most beautiful, fascinating features of the gospel is when there was no way for mankind to save themselves or bring themselves back into a right relationship with God, we are told that God himself made a way for us to be right with him. Even Jesus said it himself in John 14, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's not 10 ways, there's not two ways, there is one way and his name is Jesus. It's through faith alone in the person and work of Christ alone that we are saved. But long before the coming of Christ, God revealed to his people 
that he makes a way, that he can make a way, and that he will make a way for his people to be saved. And much like when God made the world, when he made it out of nothing, God makes a way from things that seem like there is no way. So this morning, we're going to look at two different but related stories. The first is when God led his people out of Egypt with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And the second is when God led them to and then through the Red Sea on dry ground. And what we're going to see in these stories is that God leads His people where He wants, when He wants, and how He wants, and He does what He wants when He gets us there. That's what God does. Our part in that story is just simply to follow Him wherever He's going, His leadership in our lives and to trust that he knows what he's doing and to recognize that there's more going on in the story than what's happening in my own little life right here, that God has other things that he's doing, and then in those moments to stand firm in his promises and his protection. So that's what we're going to see in these stories. And so to start us out, let's just read the first part, the latter half of Exodus 13, 17 to 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt, equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Verse 17 picks up the story of the Exodus, where it left off somewhat in the middle of chapter 12, where we read that the Israelites were forced out of the land of Egypt eventually by the Pharaoh after the final plague when God killed all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And we are told that when the Israelites left, they plundered the Egyptians of all of their valuables. And the implications of those details suggest that as they left, this was a thorough military victory that God won for his people over the Egyptians. And so as they begin this long journey out of Egypt, not only did they go with a bunch of stuff, that was awesome, but God himself went with them out of the land of Egypt, and he led them along the way. In fact, the emphasis of the section that we just read is on the fact that this is who God is. He leads his people, and he remains with them every single step of the way, which is incredible to think about 
on its own. It's really sort of the climax, or it will be the climax of the book of Exodus, is that God dwells with his people. But it gets even better when you look at the details of the story, how God leads and the way God leads. Because the first thing we are told is that God didn't do something in his leadership. It says in verse 17 that he didn't lead them the short route to the promised land of Canaan. Why? He tells us because he knew that his people were not ready to handle that level of opposition from the Philistines. Now, keep in mind, Moses is writing this story years after the actual events. And so, in the moment that it's happening, they're probably looking at Moses, and Moses is probably even thinking to himself, uh, Canaan's right over there. We could get there in two weeks. Why don't we just go that direction? And, and, but they don't go that direction, and they're curious and wondering. And, and it isn't until much later on that they come to realize that God was actually protecting them by not sending them that direction, which is oftentimes how it feels when God leads us, his people. We see that obvious route. Hey, God, that, that's where we should go. And then God takes us the other direction. And we wonder what is going on. We see this happen in John 4, where instead of going the short route, Jesus and his disciples, Jesus says, hey, why don't we pass through Samaria? which they don't want to go through Samaria. Uh, but as we know, John, uh, Jesus had a divine appointment scheduled there with a woman by the well. So this is helpful for us to know that when it comes to being led by God, he often takes the prerogative to choose his own route and make whatever stops he wants along the way. And he rarely lets us know why. If we're lucky, we realize later on why but that's what God did here. Secondly, we see not only did he not lead them that direction, the easy route, we see that he leads them the total opposite direction of where they're supposed to go in their eventual destination. And we're going to see why in the next scene. So we'll stop there. But notice thirdly, that God led by being out ahead of them. He didn't lead from behind. He led from out front. And he wasn't telling them where to go from the back. He was showing them where to go by being out in front and saying, follow my direction wherever he went. Fourthly, we see that God led them in a really unique way. He led them with a pillar of fire by night, which was giving them light in, and warmth in that cold desert evening, and with a cloud by day, giving them shade under the hot desert sun. And the picture here is that wherever these two objects went, the people were supposed to go. And they have no idea where this cloud was going or where the pillar of fire was going, much like uh, in the Gospels when they talk about the Holy Spirit. He blows where he wants to blow, and he goes where he wants to go, and we don't know what it is. We're just following him. And the idea is they didn't move any faster than he did. What I'm curious about, though, is how many times they said, uh, are we there yet? <laughs> are we there yet? Are we lost? I'm sure that probably happened. But as for, as for the details of the story, um, like about Joseph's bones and things like that, uh, we'll get into that in the podcast. What matters for our time together today is to see the primary point of this part of the story, which is that God leads his people and he's present with them. And though he often doesn't tell us why he takes us one direction and not the other, we can trust that he has our best interests 
at heart. And he has other things going on. He's doing other things beyond just what he's doing in our lives. And even though he doesn't tell us, hopefully we'll find out later on when we have that hindsight that's 2020. Um, but he is leading us where he wants us to go. And again, he's got other things going on as we're about to see in the next part of the story. So let's pick up in chapter 14 and just read the first nine verses together. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-ha-hiroth between Migdol and the sea in front of Baal-zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-Hahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. I, I want to pause right there because I want you to notice there's a structure to this section of the story. How it begins and it ends in verse 9 with the mention of these two locations that God wanted his people to encamp in. And I want you to notice those locations in the framing of this story because the author, Moses, is using that to draw attention to something. He wants to frame the story and sort of shine a light on it in a certain way so that we can understand what's going on. And just so we're clear, this is what's going on. Uh, God was leading them, as they say, between a rock and a hard place. Uh, really, it was a big, wet place, the Red Sea. Um, but the strange thing about these locations is that God was actually leading his people into a very vulnerable position militarily. And so connecting that to the prior section, what's going on here? God doesn't take them the quick route to Canaan. Uh, he goes the opposite direction that they needed to go. And then he puts them in a position of defenselessness, weakness, vulnerability, and helplessness. And we, the readers of the story, are left to wonder, is God insane? Is he lost or even worse? Are we insane? Are they insane for following him into this position? And these questions are not hyperbolic because we often ask God these questions all the time. Why did you lead me here? Why did you let that situation happen? Should I continue following you? Because this doesn't seem to be working out for me. And the short answer to those questions is that God doesn't have to answer to you. Uh, he doesn't answer to you. But the other answer is that though it may not look good, uh, you have really no idea what he's doing. Um, but this is what God does. 
He leads them into this helpless situation, but God does it for a reason, and that's the emphasis. He leads them into this situation, um, but he gives us the reason why he leads them into this situation. And I'm going to be honest, you may not like the answer that he gives, but we are given the reason why he leads them into this helpless situation. He did it to use his people as bait to catch a really big fish named Pharaoh out of the pool of Egypt. Now, that's not actually a good illustration to use, though that is the expression we would use, um, because the Israelites were actually never really in any danger, right? The worm on the hook is actually in danger. But they weren't in any danger, as we will see, but this is what God was doing and why he put his people in this defenseless position, because he was using them as bait. And we're given two further details why he was doing this. Because the Egyptians hadn't fully gotten the message of exactly who this God of Israel was. Remember that before the plagues fell on Egypt, God sent Moses to Pharaoh and he said, hey, Mo, or Pharaoh, God has commanded his people to leave and for you to release them so that he can go and worship or we can go worship him in the wilderness. And Pharaoh's response was, I don't know that guy. And so I'm not going to let his people go. And, and from that moment on, God was determined to show Pharaoh and all the Egyptians and including his own people exactly who he was. And even after all that happened, all the plagues, all the signs and wonders, all the words spoken from Moses to him, uh, they still evidently were not convinced as to who God really was. And so he says in verse 4 of the section we just read, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Judgment had already fallen on the Egyptians, but it was not yet complete, though it soon will be. Secondly, though, there's another reason why God uses his people as bait. It's because his desire is to fully and finally and completely set his people free from those who want to enslave them. The Egyptians, they did let the people go after God virtually destroyed the entire kingdom. But as we read there in verse 5, they kind of were regretting that decision. And they sought to capture them again. And so when you put both of those reasons together, we see that God put his people in this vulnerable position as bait for the Egyptians for the purpose of him getting final glory over the Egyptians and to fully and completely set his people free. God has, God has a plan. Now there's an implication for us. And I hope it's obvious to you, but just in case it isn't, let me just say this. There are times when God puts us in situations that are not comfortable for us. But we need to remember it isn't to hurt us or really endanger us at all. I mean, remember, we are never more safe than when God is present with us. But he does this in order to show his glory and to liberate us even further from those things that seek to control our lives. Something that we must understand about God in the sense that he is not like us in this way is that God does not settle and he doesn't make compromises. God doesn't cut corners or take shortcuts. God will not rest 
until everything is made right, until all evil is vanquished, until all sin is destroyed and the works of the devil are defeated. God will not accept anything but a total victory over his enemies and the enemies of his people. And this is good news for us because that's not the way we are. We settle so quickly with acknowledging, yes, I have this thing in my life, but you know what? I, I don't know. I've tried. I don't know if I'll ever overcome that. Or you know what? That relationship that is fractured and broken, I'm just going to settle with the fact that, you know, as long as they're, they're over there and I'm over here, then, then we'll be fine. As long as I don't have to deal with it, then we're okay. But we don't ever press toward reconciliation. We don't press toward true, full healing. We are so quick to settle. We look for shortcuts, quick fixes for our issues, but God is not so easily satisfied. With that said, we'll pick up the story again in verse 10 and read down to verse 14. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Look at how they settle here. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today, for the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. They saw the Egyptians closing in, and fear began to grip their souls. I mean, it's just human nature. And, and, but they make this condescending joke toward Moses. I don't know if you saw the humor in it. Um, did you bring us out here because there weren't enough graves in Egypt? I mean, Egypt was devoted to graves. There are massive pyramids that are devoted to being a graveyard, and they're making this joke. Are there not enough graves in Egypt that you would bring us out here? It's really quite funny. But even though we are told they cried to the Lord, we are also told they, they regretted leaving Egypt. And they began to wish that none of this had happened to them. And if they could go back in time, they would, because it would be better to suffer as a slave than to die in the wilderness. And that is just tragic and sad. How sad it is to see how quickly they had forgotten all that God did for them and all that God did to their enemies and forgot the promises he made to them and how quickly they had forgotten just how horrible that old life was and how good the new life is about to be. And don't we do the exact same thing? We are quick to settle for mediocrity in our Christian life. We make excuses for sin and why we aren't growing in Christ. But the good news for us is that God won't settle he is committed to a total renovation project in the lives of his people. And Moses responds in such a great way here. He rebukes them and he tells them just, just three things. Fear not, stand firm, and just watch what God is going to do. In other words, quit your griping and trust in the God who has always made 
away. He brought you this far. He has fought for you every step of the way. I mean, what have you done up to this point? He will fight for you now. The God who saves you by his grace, he will keep you by his grace. We like to think that we can handle things on our own. And when we know we can't, we just kind of complain about it or we make excuses for it. For them, it was the Egyptians. But we are helpless ultimately to defeat our greatest enemies, which for us are sin and Satan and the world he controls. But the command from God to us is the same command that he gave to them. Fear not, stand firm in the promises of God and watch what God will do for you. So with that said, let's just see how the story ends. Verse 15, we'll read down to verse 29. And let me just say, this is a long part of the story, but it's really just the conclusion to everything that we've read so far. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Let me pause right there. There is a time when prayer is not appropriate. God's already told you, go do that. Don't be a procrastinator in prayer. Actually act while you're doing. Why why are you crying to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots and his horsemen, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued And went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses and all the king's men. They didn't, never mind, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us Flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. A miracle God worked. 
But the point is simple. God made a way where there was no way. God made a way where there was no way. And he did it with flair and he did it with glorious fashion. But th- there's a lot going on in this story, but really it's, it's simple. God made a way. And the most important, I think, feature of this story is that the thing God used to make a way for his people to be set free from their enemies truly and fully and finally is the same thing that God used to bring glory to himself when he defeated the Egyptian army and brought them to nothing. This was one miracle, but two results. God used the water on the one hand as a means of salvation, that as his people passed through the waters, the visualization of this is that the life that they were longing for back in Egypt, he's saying that, that life is on the other side of the river, on the other side of this massive body of water, and there's no going back to that other side. It's over. That old life is gone, and now that you've passed through the waters and have been cleansed by this salvation that the Lord has brought, you are walking into newness of life. The Apostle Paul would pick up on this idea in 1 Corinthians and apply that to baptism. That old life is done. You have new life in Christ. This is your salvation for God's people. But that same water that brought them salvation and new life was used by God to bring judgment and death on their enemies. One miracle, two completely different results. And, and I think what we are meant to see here is a pattern that is repeated for us at the cross of Christ, that what God used to bring salvation to all who believe, the death of Jesus on the cross, he also used to destroy all the works of darkness. That right when Satan thought, I've got him pinned in a corner. In fact, I've got him pinned on a cross, and I have won. All of a sudden, when he thought he had the victory, God trapped him in the corner, and God flipped the script and took him down. And that's what we're seeing is this pattern here. So how does the author end the story? He writes, look at with me at verse 30. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Whenever we come to a passage of Scripture, we ultimately have to go to that point where we say, so what? What does this passage mean for me? And what is it calling me to do? And I think this week it's really simple. This passage is calling us to do what it called them to do, to believe, to not fear, but instead fear the Lord and to believe in Him and in His servant. Though for them it was Moses, for us It's a greater than Moses, it's Jesus, to believe in the Lord and the servant whom he has sent, and to believe in him, why? Because he has done everything, everything necessary to save you and to liberate you from those things that want to continue to seek to oppress you. You didn't do it, he did it. And then to celebrate the fact that, again, God's not going to settle until all of your struggles and all of your sins, and all of your spiritual battles are completely won, and we can look in the rearview mirror and see all of those things lying 
dead on the shore. I know life is difficult, life is hard, but one day Jesus is going to come again. And when he does, he's going to make all things right. That's the promise. Until then, we live in the middle in this tension between what they call the already and the not yet, the already of our salvation and the not yet of when Jesus consummates that salvation, brings it to its fullness and its completion. And what we are called to do in the midst of that tension is to follow him and to trust in the God who always, always makes a way, even when there seems like there is no way at all. Why don't we pray and then we'll have a time of communion together. God, we come before you and, and man, we, we do look to you as the God who saves and the God who makes a way to save your people when it seems like there was no way at all. And you do it in glorious fashion, bringing the most glory to yourself and the most good to your people. We acknowledge, though, God, just like the Israelites, we are short-sighted. We are, we don't often look by faith, but we look by what we actually see right in front of us. So help us to have that heavenly perspective, that perspective that comes through faith and trust in your word and your promises and your character. And, and God, help us by your spirit to be led into that truth and to walk closely with you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.